Well, according to my records, this is the 254th sermon that I've preached from this pulpit since taking the call to Living Word. doesn't count weddings or, or funerals. And of those 253 previous sermons, this is my least favorite subject to prepare to preach on. As you likely know already, today's topic in our series, Asking for a Friend, is the question, can women be pastors? Now this, this isn't my least favorite sermon topic because I'm afraid of the controversy surrounding it. I've never been one to shy away from the difficulty of a, of a topic or scripture text. The reason that I dislike this particular question is because it's so charged with cultural assumptions and personal feelings and perceptions that it's almost impossible to address in a way that people won't mishear or misunderstand what is being said. So I want to establish three points for clarity as we begin today. And the first one is this, that my highest and greatest calling as your pastor is to rightly teach and preach the word of God. James chapter 3 tells me that those who teach will be judged more strictly. Hebrews chapter 13 reminds us that for me, the pastor, I must give an account for that which has been entrusted to me. And so the spirit in which this sermon is given to you today is flowing out of those warnings from God to me as your pastor. I revere God more than I fear people, more than I fear anyone who might listen online and misconstrue my words, and more than I fear the culture in which we live. And so the chief concern today is with what God has said, not with how we as humans feel about what God has said. And so I ask that you hear me today and all that's said from that perspective and with that heart, knowing that as pastor, I love you. I'm absolutely concerned about how you feel, but that I've been called by you and by God to teach and to preach the word. You can disagree with how I interpret scripture passages that we'll deal with today, and that's fine, and we can still be friends. And that brings me to the second thing that I think should be made clear today, and that's that nothing that I say is personal. Sermon is not targeted. It's not agenda-driven. I didn't want to preach this sermon, but many of you asked about it. I felt like I'd be taking the easy way out if I dodged a question that multiple people asked when we were collecting questions for this sermon series. And then the, the final point of clarity as we begin today is this, and I want to state this as clearly as possible, that men and women are created in God's image with the same value, dignity, and worth. Let's make that clear. Men and women are created in God's image with the same value, dignity, and worth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So my hope is that this is absolutely clear, that the Bible teaches that men and women are created in God's image with the same value, dignity, and worth. God doesn't love men more than women or women more than men. 
The same is true for the church. God doesn't, in his church, value men more highly than women or the other way around. He has given the ministry and the mission of the church to both men and women as he sees fit. So with those points of clarity, let's look at our text for today. And it's a text that has bothered many people. It's been labeled problematic. And that is, to be honest, it's blatantly offensive and maybe even wicked in the eyes of our culture today. But God said it. And so our text today comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. This is God's word to us. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. God, we need your wisdom today. We need your help today as we explore what is culturally a really difficult topic. And so give us understanding, but even more importantly, make us willing to believe what your word says. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard what the scriptures say from 1 Timothy on this topic and on this question that we're faced with this morning. And while my primary focus today is on the First Timothy passage, it's worth noting that if you're taking notes, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 34, says essentially the same thing in a different context. So that's First Corinthians 14, verses 34 and following. So here's how I want to handle things today. We'll do a brief study through the major statements of this text, almost all of which are controversial and offensive. And then I want to address three major topics, the topics of identity, interpretation, and authority. So let's first examine the major statements of the text. We'll begin in verse 11 that says this, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now before we get too worked up about this, let's pause and appreciate that there is underlying this, the fact and, and the assumption that Paul is working with that women are, in fact, supposed to and encouraged to learn. Women weren't relegated to other areas during the time of teaching, as was common in many parts of the world at this time. This was actually a sign of freedom that the gospel brought. Because there were other cultures, including Jewish cultures during this time, that opened up teaching to men only. And so this is actually, in, in many ways, elevating the status of women. It's, it's assuming, Paul is just assuming, that women are a part of the gathered worship and teaching of the church. We take that for granted, right, in our culture, but this is an important point to recognize. Don't be too quick to, to pass that by as we think about the posture and the tone of Paul's writing here. We can't read him as if he's writing today. This passage is encouraging women to follow the order that God has put in place for his church. He has organized his church in the same type of way that every uh, human institution has order. 
There are guidelines, there are structures in place that are intended for unity and clarity. He's dealt earlier in the letter with distractions in the church, like anger, like quarreling, like trying to outdo one another by wearing the fanciest clothing or jewelry. And then here he directs his focus to the order of teaching and preaching in the congregation. This isn't a command for women to be mute. Don't hear Paul that way, but rather an instruction to ensure that proper order, the proper order that God has put in place, is followed in his church. The emphasis here is on the posture of women when it comes to preaching and teaching in the church. He uses the words quietness and submission to the order and plan of God as opposed to perhaps a vocal and rebellious spirit. Uh, that flows to the next thing that he says. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. As if Paul's words aren't culturally offensive enough for us, he says this. Notice first that Paul says, I do not permit. These are important words because he's, he's sharing his approach to this topic, what has been taught in all the churches, which is larger than just one local church. This church that Timothy is in currently is the church in Ephesus. So Paul's saying this is larger than just the church in Ephesus. This is my approach with all the churches. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Paul is sort of saying this isn't a matter of debate for me. But what exactly are the two prohibited things that he mentions here? teaching, and when we read the larger picture of how the New Testament speaks of teaching, we pretty quickly see that this is a reference to the gathered, authoritative preaching and teaching of God's Word in the regular, rhythmic worship of Christ's church. Generally, this has been understood, and I think rightly, to say, I do not permit a woman to teach a man, the way that this has typically been understood. That's been the position of the church because we have examples in scripture of women being encouraged to teach, for example, younger women. And so the prohibition isn't women teaching in general, but women teaching according to 1 Timothy is prohibiting women to teach and preach men during the formal gathered worship of the church. The second part of this matter is the question of authority. Verse 13 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Many have argued, and I, and I think it's a good argument, that the phrase exercise authority is probably better here. Assume might make it seem like what Paul is speaking here is about women pushing men aside and selfishly grabbing for power. It doesn't seem to be the context here. Paul is saying that he does not permit a woman to teach in the gathered worship of the church or to exercise spiritual authority in the congregation over men. I don't think that we can see those as two unrelated prohibitions. These aren't two entirely separate prohibitions. Think about that twofold description. One who teaches and one who exercises authority. What is that describing? It's describing the office of pastor or elder that we see defined elsewhere. Think of 1 Timothy chapter 5, just a couple of chapters after our text. 
We read this, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So this combination of teaching and exercising authority that Paul seems to prohibit from women is a description of the office of elder and pastor. In fact, if we were to summarize the office of pastor or elder, most simply, I think we would say that a pastor or elder is one trusted with the teaching and spiritual oversight of the congregation. Whether we like what Paul says here or not, the fact is that he said that it's his practice not to allow women to step into the role of pastor or elder. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that that's a good interpretation of what Paul says, we just need to keep reading. Remember that the chapter breaks in 1 Timothy are supplied by editors. They weren't there. Paul didn't write chapter 2 and then chapter 3. It's one continual thought. And the very beginning of chapter 3, right after these words, what do we read? Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the man of one woman or the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Paul prohibits women from teaching men and exercising authority in the church. And then immediately following, flowing right out of that, he goes on to describe what it is that is required for those who are in the office of pastor and elder. So what comes next? Grammatically, we see a conjunction. Back to English class. The English version of this conjunction that we see in our text is the word for, or it could be the word because. Either would work fine. Why is the church structured this way? Why has Paul prohibited these things? Verse 13, for or because Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is the same argument that is used in 1 Corinthians as well. The reason for this order in the church is that it reflects God's order of creation. This is simply the way that God has chosen to structure things. This is not a matter, as we established earlier, of value, of dignity, of worth. It's simply a matter of order. And this order, and this is important to recognize, this order existed, was put in place, as Paul says, before sin, right? before the fall of mankind. And then it's sort of like Paul says, in case that's not enough for you, think about this one. And that brings us to verse 14. And... So the second part of his argument, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. The previous makes clear that from before the fall, God had established a certain order for his church, for creation, for the home. And this order is a gift. That's so important to see. That God has given order as a gift because order prevents chaos. Right? That's the way that God has structured his world, that order prevents chaos. And so we see order as a gift, that it is good, it is right, it's how things operate best when done in mutual love and trust and care. But then God realizes that we live currently in a post-fall, post-Garden of Eden reality. 
So here he draws on this from the first rebellion of mankind where Eve took the lead in being deceived and in rebellion against God. The New Testament is going to talk a lot about Adam's guilt in that first sin. So suffice it to say, Paul isn't letting Adam off the hook. He's just asserting here that this prescribed order for the church in which men hold the offices of teaching and authority is consistent with both the pre-fall reality, the perfected, the it-is-very-good reality in the Garden of Eden, and also the post-sin, post-fall order of mankind. God's perfect order for his church is not simply, and this is so important, it's not simply an instruction for the time and the location in which the letter was written. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying that this order for the church reaches back thousands of years to the creation of humanity. And then we arrive at what is the last and what many have perceived as the most difficult verse in this passage. Verse 15, and it says this, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Paul is not saying that men are saved by faith and that women are saved by bearing children. He's pointing to the ultimate difference between men and women in God's design. Think about it. What is the ultimate distinction between men and women according to the way that God has designed us? Bearing children. Paul is illustrating that the beautiful and the unique roles that he has given to men and that he has given to women in his design. He has given some things to men and withheld them from women, and he has given other things to women and withheld them from men. Particularly, speaking of women, that is the gift of being the life giver of his greatest blessing. Blessing of children. Paul is emphasizing something that's so critical, not just for this topic, but for understanding the world in which we live in today. That there is a distinction between men and women, not in their value, but in their roles. This is such an important part of this conversation. The New Testament here is not subjugating women, but actually elevating them, giving us a high view of this role uh, that God has given to women and withheld from men. So we have a basic understanding of what this passage says. Now let's talk about it in terms of a more practical perspective, specifically in these three areas of identity, interpretation, and authority. And so let's first talk about identity because it flows out of what we just said. Fundamental to this discussion of human identity is the reality of what God has created and why he has created it in the way that he has created it. Scripture teaches us that God created us, that he has given us our identity. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. And one of the essential pieces of this conversation is the understanding that God has made us male and female, as we read earlier from Genesis, for a reason as part of his order and design for his creation. Previous generations worked really hard 
to convince our culture of a significant and disastrous lie. It's a lie that some have referred to as the lie of the interchangeability of male and female. Our world has come to believe that there are no functional or foundational differences between men and women. And some of this has been good progress, right? For example, women have the intellectual capacity to vote. That's really good progress. We celebrate that as the people of God. It's really good advancement. Women are as capable as men of leading organizations and companies, of engaging in meaningful debate, of contributing to society. So some of what has happened has been good and healthy progress. But what's not good is this lie of interchangeability. The lie that men and women are the same. Or as you hear it expressed so often, that men and women are equal. If by equal you mean having the same value and dignity and worth, then yes, absolutely. But if by equal you mean interchangeable, then absolutely not. To believe that men and women are interchangeable is to believe that God's design of distinct and beautiful realities and nuances and gifts and roles of human personhood can be redefined. It's to deny both the Bible and human biology. We've seen where the lie of interchangeability has ended up. With the belief that by simply adding or removing genitals and augmenting physical features that you can be something that you are not. It's madness. It's a lie that must be refuted by the truth. And that truth is this, that God created men and women to bear unique roles and functions in life and in family and in society and in church. And those unique roles and responsibilities are beautiful and they are good. Womanhood and femininity should be celebrated and valued, not as interchangeable with maleness, but as distinct and and fashioned by our God and endowed with certain blessings and opportunities and beautiful roles and functions that men cannot and will not fill. If God intended us to be androgynous, he would have created us in that way. But he didn't. Instead, he has ordered his creation in such a way that there are differing roles and functions that must be celebrated and that are not interchangeable. The order that God has created, including Male and female is a fundamental part of the identity that we are given by God, and it cannot be denied. The next area that I want to look at today is the area of interpretation. Pastors and theologians might refer to this as hermeneutics. It's a study and and principles of interpreting the scriptures. How do we understand and read the Bible? How do we teach and preach the Bible in a meaningful and faithful way. And when it comes to our discussion today, there are two major hermeneutical or interpretive errors that are often made. The first error is this, a cultural interpretation of God's design of the office of pastor and elder and the role of women in ministry. So a cultural interpretation. There may be confusion about how we make sense of what Paul has said in our text for today and elsewhere, 
there was actually very little question about our topic in the first century. The Bible is pretty clear in its teaching that the pastors and elders ordained in the first century were all exclusively men. There's very little question about this in the first century after the scriptures were written. We could also look at the fact that Jesus' disciples and ultimately apostles were all men. Also, when you consider the backdrop, the history that they were working from, Jewish history, all of the Jewish priests and those in true spiritual authority preaching the Torah publicly were all men. This is where much of the difficulty enters the discussion. Almost everybody agrees that Jesus' understanding, and for example, from our text today, Paul's understanding, and the the understanding of the rest of the apostles, was that the first apostles and then the first pastors and elders were men. Almost nobody disagrees with that. So how has the church gotten to a point where many denominations and congregations will ordain women? I don't think it's helpful to give you a caricature of what other people believe. There's this tendency, and you see it all over the place, especially in politics, to take another person's beliefs or teachings or practices or actions and highlight the silliest features, right? Like a caricature that you'd have drawn at the county fair, where they highlight the silliest features, and they often overlook the substance of the arguments. And so I don't want to do that today. I I will add that the justifications that differing churches use to deviate from the New Testament consensus that we've talked about and go their own way are many. There are at least five or maybe six basic arguments that are used for the ordination of women and then many varieties and sub-arguments based on those. But there's one thing that's consistent among all of those interpretations and arguments and that's that one thing that's, that's consistent among all of those who have chosen to welcome women to the office of pastor and elder is that there is a belief that we are free to take scripture out of its given context and to reinterpret the heart of what is said in light of the current culture. You following me? There's this argument that we are free to take the heart maybe the core, the essence of what Scripture says in its original context, to pull that out and to reinterpret it in our modern culture. So that is what is unified in all of these arguments. That's exactly the case with this conversation. We're taking something that God has said and established in a fairly clear manner and reinterpreting it in a world and in a culture that absolutely denies the order that God has put in place. A culture that is labeled God's order for church and home to be outmoded and oppressive. The problems with that approach to interpreting scripture are many. We could be here all day, but I will share two out of brevity this morning. First, it places mankind and the current culture as the theological referee. Rather than just simply asking what does scripture say and believing it, This approach allows teachers and preachers and theologians to dream up whatever they think Jesus would say if he were here today. It allows us to place into the mouth of God the words that we wish Jesus would have said. It's actually a rejection of 
the sufficiency of Scripture. What the Bible says is seen as embarrassing, regressive. And so this approach allows us to update what God has said for a modern audience. I think we all see the problem with this approach. But there's another problem with the approach, and that's this. That it can be used to attack anything that we don't like in the Bible. If we can reinvent God's view of issues that he has spoken pretty clearly about in view of a changed culture, where does that train stop? And we don't have to wonder where the train stops. We can look around at other church bodies who have adopted this way of interpreting scripture. A church that claims a a very similar theological heritage to ours has in recent years ordained a trans bishop. The reality is that the train doesn't stop. It devolves and eventually it crashes into a ravine of godlessness. If God says something that you don't like, something that you don't agree with, this approach to scripture allows you to find a creative way around it. It's full of creative ways to deny what God has said. The second error that we see when it comes to interpretation is the tendency to interpret with our desires first. Let me explain by giving a a real-life example related to our discussion today. One of the verses that's so often used by those arguing for the ordination of women is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's a beautiful verse. But it's often one of those grenade verses, like we pull the pin and, and launch it and just see what happens. But the truth is, this verse only says what they want it to say, that we can deny maleness and femaleness. It only says that if you want it to say that. Because if we look at the larger context, if we see what Paul is saying here, we see this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Is Paul saying that because of what Jesus has done, there is no longer any distinction between men and women? Of course not. He's saying that regarding your salvation, when it comes to your standing before God, there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. There is no difference between slave and free, but between man and woman. We are all children of God through faith. This is an amazing message. Let's not gut the beauty of that message in order to prove a point that the text isn't trying to say. This is the gospel. That it is by faith that you are saved. He's not erasing biological sex. He's not destroying God's design for the order of his creation. He's saying that when it comes to God's love for you in Christ, when it comes to your salvation and your eternal hope, we are all children of God through faith, men and women the same. This and other verses that are used to advocate for 
a view of gender in the office of pastor and elder that is different from the one taught in the New Testament are examples of reinterpreting with our desires first. If you want the Bible to say something, you can figure out a way to make it say what you want it to say. And this leads directly into the last area that I want to discuss this morning, and that's the area of authority. On its most basic level, this is a question of whether or not we are willing to believe and to submit to what the Bible says, even when we don't like it. And I'll be honest, I don't really like the way that God designed this. I think there are many women who would be far more gifted in the pastoral office than I am. Better preachers, better leaders, more empathetic, better theologians. Many women whose gifts are far exceeding mine. If God had asked my opinion, I would have told him that it's perfectly fine for a woman to serve in the office of pastor. But here's the reality. God didn't ask me. My opinion doesn't really matter because I'm not the authority. Our statement of faith as a church says that the Bible is, quote, the final authoritative guide for faith and conduct. In other words, the Bible gets the final say in all matters regarding faith and life. And, and while from my limited perspective, it seems that some women would be very capable and make great pastors and elders, I don't stand above Scripture. I must submit to and subject myself to God's word in faith and in life. And whatever your position on this question, whether you agree with how I read and have laid out scripture this morning, or whether you think I'm just a product of the patriarchy, I beg you to consider this question. Is the Bible the final source of authority for faith and life? Are you willing to submit yourself to the word of God even when you don't like it? Even when you can't understand why God would say what he has said? Think of it this way. Are you under the word or are you over the word? We've all placed ourselves above the word of God in certain areas of our lives and our faith. God's call to us today is to repent, to repent of that first sin of our first parents of Doubting what God really said. Repent of our desire to be the authority. Repent of our weaponization of the Bible to say what we want it to say. Repent of our doubt and our unbelief. However you come down on this issue that's in front of us today. My hope is that you will consider your relationship with the word. Are you under the word? Or are you placing yourself above the word? Only one can be true. And your sin nature will consistently attempt to elevate you as the authority above the word. So we repent of that today. We ask God to make us people who are under the word. And what we discover is that when we are under the word, submitting ourselves to the word of God what we discover is that true freedom, true freedom is actually found in living in submission to God's word and God's order and God's plan and God's will in every area of our lives, not just this one in front of us today. Listen to what Jesus has said in, in John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, 
then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here's what we observe around us. In a quest for liberation and equality, we end up abandoning God's design and order for human persons and for his church. If that's the case, we will inevitably find ourselves a rudderless ship in the middle of the ocean. That's not freedom. That's not liberation. It's disaster. And we will end up wherever the currents take us. Right? You can look at any number of denominations who have turned their back on the word of God. And that's exactly what they are. A rudderless ship in the middle of the ocean going wherever the currents of the current culture take them. But Jesus promises that if we abide in his word, if we place ourselves under the authority of his word, then we will know the truth and the truth will make us truly free. Women play an irreplaceable role in ministry and in the life of the church. Women are created in God's image, with the same value, dignity, and worth as men. Women have gifts of teaching and discernment and leadership that often exceed those of their male counterparts. It is not a matter of value, but a matter of God's authority over roles and order. By faith, both women and men are children of God. We are simply not free to change what God has said to reform the order that he has established in his word. And therefore, we confess in our statement of faith what the scriptures have said, that the office of pastor and elder is to be filled by men only. Let's pray. God, we don't always like what you have said in your word. And yet we confess that it is true and that it is good even when we can't understand it. We confess to you our sin, our mistrust our desire to place ourselves over the word to use it and even weaponize it for our own purposes our own personal gain lord we confess that sometimes we just deny what your word has said because we want to whether on this topic or on another we repent of our sin we place ourselves under your word your word is good and so we submit our lives to it we thank you that you have promised that when we abide in your word that we are truly your disciples and that we will know the truth and the truth will bring true freedom. Not freedom in the way of this world that promises freedom but ends up leaving us stranded. But that we will know the truth. The truth will bring true freedom. So give us faith to believe all that you have said. Lead us to the cross today, each one of us in repentance for trusting in ourselves, for leaning on our own understanding. We believe that your ways are good and your word is true. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.